Blog Talk Radio. on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the, the show that talks about some of the tough topics, and, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, an interesting word, I guess, but it's fun to talk about some of these tough topics. And one of the reasons it's fun is because we get information out there, and some of us realize we're not alone. Some of us realize that we have uh, capabilities that we didn't have. Some of us realize that some stuff is is uh, available to us or going on that we didn't realize before. So it is nice to be doing this show. I enjoy it tremendously. We are starting our third year, actually, right now doing this show. So it's been a joy. Um, Today we have a guest with us, uh, Dr. Jacqueline White. Jackie, welcome. Hello, Heather. (laughs) <laughs> and Jackie is so we're so fortunate because she's actually supposed to be on the beach <laughs> and enjoying this three day weekend and instead I've dragged her away from the sun and the sand and she's going to talk about it, uh, her research with us and I'm glad that she is. Our talk today is going to be centering around uh, a research uh, that Jackie conducted on the campus serial rapist. Now, we've been talking a lot over the last few months in the media, amongst ourselves, about campus rape. The president has even become involved and obviously has issued some dictates and some some ideas. Campuses have been um, trying to get a handle on campus rape instead of just pushing it under the carpet, as has been the habit for so many institutions for so long. And that's really a great thing. But what do we really know about campus rapists? I mean, I didn't know, for example, whether college rapists are typically the boy next door who just gets involved in a fraternity and starts drinking and and commits a rape, or whether they the college rapist is um, some wholly nefarious kind of criminal, uh, you know, junior criminal, or that that has a supply of roofies, or you know, just who is the campus rapist. And Jackie's research is going to help us understand that. Now, Jackie, I I could read your bio, but you know, it would probably make more sense for you to tell us, how did you come to this place? How did you come to a point in your academic career where this is of interest to you, to do research on the campus rapist? Okay, thank you for asking that question. It really does allow me to put the research in context. Um, I've actually been doing this research for over 35 years, and so when you mentioned the president and the White House, it's actually exciting for me to, at least at the end of my career, see the national spotlight being focused on something that I've been working on for a very long time. In my early career, I was interested basically in human aggression, and I was also interested in gender issues because um, I've been involved with my campus women and gender studies program, and so there was a, a natural meshing of those two interests, both gender issues and um, and interpersonal violence. And being on a college campus, studying the phenomenon on campus seemed like a really good way to start. And so I've been uh, plugging away at that for a lot of years. And the study that you're focusing on, looking at these patterns of sexual perpetration, really grew out of years of trying to understand perpetration and victimization, particularly in looking for patterns 
of offending as well as victimization across time. So I've well, been at it a really long time. Yeah. One of the things that you said in a previous study, which just really, I mean, you just came out and said in this study, um, uh, a, a previous one, uh, that the primary goal of sexual victimization research is to prevent it from happening. And I think that that's really important. First of all, thank you for just coming right out and saying that in your research, because I think a lot of times we forget, you know, what is the primary goal here. Um, and to just come right out and say that is uh, just so outstanding in my view, because it lets everybody know, whether you're an academic or not, that this is why we're doing this stuff. This is why um, people like you are taking the time and going through the efforts of looking at numbers and, and doing analyses the whole goal is to try to prevent that sexual victimization. And and you're going to be able to do that more effectively if you know what you're dealing with. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's an important thing to remember. You're welcome. I think you're the first person that's ever said thank you. Um, but I, I think that there are those of us who are researchers who are willing to um, get in there, do the research, get the numbers, take the time, to do the deep dive into the analyses because there are so many victims out there that are desperately in need of services and you have service providers and advocates who are in the trenches every day on the front lines and they just don't have time to do the research. So to me it, it feels like a team effort. So that we Well we all have our strengths. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, we all have our strengths. Um, I know, um, you know, I admire advocates so much because I could never do that. I could never do one-on-one. I, I just don't have it in me. I don't have the skill. I don't have the capability. Um, but you know what? I can look at numbers, you know, <laughs> and if that's exactly. helpful, then yay. Yeah, you know? I've, I've, been accused, I've been accused of being a data wonk. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but that's important because we pay attention to numbers. And even those of us who kind of are skeptical about research and, you know, uh, we're st- we still pay attention to those numbers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's very important, um, whether we realize it or not, to, to be a, a, a data wonk, if you will. Um, so let's talk about, first of all, the need for studying the campus serial rapist. Why study the rapist? Okay. So let me build on the statement that you quoted from my study about doing research on victimization. If we really want to prevent sexual assault victimization, we really need to study perpetrators. As long as we only study victims, we can come up with um, intervention programs, training prevention programs that might help individual women reduce their risk of being targeted for victimization but we're really not going to end the victimization until we can stop the perpetrator's behavior. The perpetrator is the cause of sexual assault and rape. So that, number one, is a driving motive. The other thing that I think is important, and again, this is that historical context and being kind of a data wonk, in the early years of doing this research, everybody would be doing these what we call sort of one-shot surveys. You would ask people questions about, have you ever done this? Has this ever happened to you? And that gave us a great deal of information about what was going on. But it doesn't really help us understand patterns across time. I did probably, it's safe to say, the first longitudinal study 
of um, dating violence and sexual assault and perpetration on college campuses. It's very expensive, difficult research to do. I had funding from NIH and um, NIJ as well as CDC to do this work. And that's probably a good 20 years ago that I did this work. And then more recently, Marty Thompson, who is a social psychologist at Clemson University, has done the second large longitudinal study. Longitudinal means over a long period of time. Yeah, longitudinal means that you ask the same person on multiple occasions what has happened since the last time they completed the survey. So then you get a picture of what the same person is doing across time. Once we had that information and combined with some new, pretty sophisticated statistical tools, we were able to really dig into that long, those longitudinal data to see if there are patterns. In the past, the tendency has been to say, okay, we have identified a group of men who admit to engaging in behaviors that meet the definition of some form of sexual assault, and now we want to see if we can distinguish them from men who don't at least admit to these behaviors. And there's quite a body of literature that tells us that there are a lot of differences between these two groups of guys. But going back to the comment that you made a little earlier, you know, what do we know about these guys? Are they guys next door? Are they some horrible, um, heinous criminal? We really didn't know because we only had offenders and non-offenders that we could compare. And so with these new um, analytic ways of essentially sorting out the data and looking for patterns, we're able to take a much uh, closer look at what's going on. And in fact, what surprises when we looked at the longitudinal data was that there are patterns and there are differences. But let me stress before we get too much further along, this is just the beginning. Our study is probably the first to distinguish these patterns. So there's a great deal now that we have to do to learn more about the men who are in each of these patterns. But it's really exciting because it's opening the door, I think, to really help victims and help campuses more uh, carefully craft programs that fit the kind of um, prevention that would reach out to what's needed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, basically let me, one side let me interrupt just, just a second, Jackie. Sure. Um, I want to give out our phone number because we're going to be talking about who are these perpetrators in a moment. And if you have something that you'd like to ask Jackie, if you'd like to contribute something, please give us a call, 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Or you can go to the chat room and type in a question. We already have a couple people in the chat room, so no questions as of yet, but uh, keep listening, and I'm sure there's going to be some questions coming up. So, again, 646-378-0430, or you can click into the chat room on the website. One of the things that I really appreciate you bringing out, uh, Jackie, is to talking about the, the the research. I think a lot of times people will say, oh, here, I saw this one study that said blah, 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 and therefore that's the situation all over. I, I remember um, uh, you, you and I, I think, are the same demographic, Jackie. Do you remember the red uh, uh, M&Ms? We couldn't have red M&Ms because oh, you, yeah. you, the, 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, red and, M&Ms, uh, that red dye was shown to harm rats in one study, and so therefore all M&Ms couldn't do, be red anymore. And it was for years that M&Ms, they didn't make any red M&Ms. I think they're doing it now. But the danger with studies, of course, is that people make sweeping, sweeping decisions based on a study. And what you so eloquently pointed out is this is one study that will lead the way to other studies, and eventually we'll have a really good picture. This is a great start, but it's kind of like looking out a window. If you look out a window through the bottom of a drinking glass, all you're going to see is maybe a bush or a shrub. If you look through the window with another drinking glass, you might see part of the driveway. Another one, you're going to see, you know, the tree. The point being that each one of you, them gives you a little picture, but it's not until you have a lot that you actually can tell what's, what you can see through that whole window. And I think that, you know, I thank you for pointing that out because, yep, this is significant and this is great, but it's the beginning of what's right. going to give us a true picture. So thank you right. for that. Well, you're okay. welcome. Science, science is really about the accumulation of knowledge. And when you're a good scientist, you're always questioning, even your own results, wanting to move forward to the next step. So I just, I want, I would like you and your listeners to make sure that that we under, we all understand that we're really going into to new territory that I think is going to be really fruitful. As I said a few minutes ago, most of the past research were these one-shot surveys, and so if you ask a group of men, have you ever done this or that, how many times, and somebody comes along and says, well, I did, I did this sexually assaultive behavior five times, what does that mean? Did he do it? Were there five different victims? Did he do five different things to the same person? Was it a spree weekend? We have no way of knowing what reports of multiple acts mean. And so by doing the longitudinal study, we're at least beginning to say, okay, if somebody had said five times, can we get a better sense of of what's going on? And that's what we found in our work. The other thing I want to mention, too, uh, with science moving forward before we get to the results, I think what we did, I had some collaborators on this, Kevin Swardow, who's at Georgia State, Mary Koss, who's at the University of Arizona, Marty Thompson at um, Clemson, whom I've already mentioned, and then Tony Abbey at Wayne State. So this was really a team effort, and and they all, um, I think, deserve credit for their contributions to this project. What we decided. And you had a really good sample base. I mean, I was uh, astounded. I'm not seeing it right now, but you had a lot of participants, right? Here it is. Yeah. 1,645 participants. You know, mm-hmm. that's a lot. We had of people. 800. Yeah, we had 850 um, in my study, and then the other 800 and some were from Marty Thompson's study. What we did that I think is really important to note and led, I think, some strength to our findings is that we first conducted the analyses with just my data set, and we found these patterns. Then we said, okay, you know, any one study could be a fluke, like red M&Ms. We just don't know. It's one study. could be a fluke. So let's do the same analysis with Marty Thompson's data collected by a completely different set of researchers on a different campus 20 years later. This is the part that's sort of depressing. We got the same results. Nothing had changed in 20 years. But we got the same pattern from two independent data sets. And that really, I think, lends um, some strength to the claim that these patterns are real. And then hopefully additional researchers will build on the work that we've done and help us 
move forward. Okay. So let's get to the nitty-gritty. What were the patterns that you identified? We found three patterns. First of all, let me say we found, just like most everybody else, we found that about 10% 10 to 11% of the sample in both Marty's data and my data had admitted to behaviors that meet the definition of rape. We never ask anybody if you raped. We used we ask behaviorally specific questions. So that's the first thing we found. And let me also point out that in this study we were only looking at rape. We were not looking at all the other forms of sexual misconduct, which maybe we can talk about a little bit later. Um, so we found that about you know 10, 11 percent of the men reported rape. So that's what most everybody else found. However, when we looked at the patterns. We had asked these men about their um, rape behaviors from the age of 14 to whenever they completed the survey. We found that one group of men had um, committed most of their assaults as adolescents. So they were admitting to, uh, um, to rapes before they even got to college. So I think that's really important because... In a lot of these surveys that were just asking these men, um, have you ever done this? If they committed the assault when they were in high school, that's not going to help the campus with their programming. So I think it's really important to understand that some of these men have been committing um, sexual assault, not just rape, but we have other data that says they're doing other things before they get to college. So even though today we're talking about campus sexual assault, I would really like um, there to be more focus on what's going on during those high school years because oh, yeah. there are serious problems then. So so that's one so we found one group of men and what surprised us is that most of these men, when they got to college, if they if they raped again it would have been as a freshman. And they stopped. So they they're what we call the decreasing group or the desisters. And that was about five percent of the sample. So that's really intriguing. That's an interesting research question to be pursued down the road. What is it about the transition from high school to college that actually reduced the chances of being a sexual offender? So that's one group. Another group we found um, were guys who did not offend in high school, but they actually began offending in college, and their risk of offending actually increased across time. This was only about 2% of the sample. So these are the guys that are reporting um, committing at least one act of rape in two or more time periods, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Um, We didn't have many people. I don't think we we had very few cases that actually reported a rape in all all, um, four years of college. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, so so there's a lot to be sorted out there, and um, I and, and the team were talking about what the next steps are to, to dig deeper into the data to figure out what's going on. But again, it's about 2% of the sample look like they are um, repeat, repeatedly offending across time. That leaves a huge group who are committing rape but they're only doing so during one particular academic year. And this is really, I think, important. There's been a, a, a lot of talk, a lot of narrative around the campus serial rapist and that if you just identify these guys and get them off campus, we can solve the problem. Our data are going, you know what? 
there are a lot of guys out there that are sort of the the one timers. I mean, now they might they might have more they might have several victims, like you know, like a spree weekend. I mean, we don't we can't answer those kind of questions. But their raping is very time limited, and we really and because these guys are accounting for most of the rapes, it's really important from a victim perspective to dig a lot deeper and figure out what can we do to prevent these guys from offending. They don't appear to be having this pattern. So what's going on? And we really don't know at this point. But it's really, I think, um, it makes the story more complicated. It certainly doesn't make for a good, uh, you know, 10-second soundbite. But from a campus planning perspective, it's important. Yeah. Did any of your questions involve, um, for example, I'm thinking, you know, were, were drugs involved? I mean, if they were heavily into drugs at one particular point, um, did that, or is that outside the scope of your study? Uh, well, we don't. We haven't analyzed those data. We do have data that does look at things like um, patterns of alcohol and drug use in general um, that we we can go back and we can look at. We do have... Um, some data on some of their attitudes, engaging in other kinds of delinquent behavior. We haven't analyzed any of those data yet, so that's all to be determined. The one thing that we have looked at that looks promising, remember I mentioned the one group of young men that seems to seem to be at highest risk for offending during the um, high school years and not in college? Yes. It looks like those young men were more likely to have been exposed to domestic violence, experienced parental physical punishment, or actually been victims of childhood sexual abuse, suggesting that maybe their offending as adolescents, it's related to the, to the earlier trauma that they experienced because those childhood experiences do not predict the other two groups of men, the ones, the sort of the one-timers on campus, or the increasing group. So there's some or very would, uh, would would they be would they be in a climate where aggressive behavior is 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 acceptable in any kind of form? Sure, sure, because it looks like um, those same men are also more, more likely as adolescents to be engaged in delinquent activities and using alcohol and drugs as an adolescent. So I think I think you're probably right that there's this whole constellation of sort of um, anti-social uh, dysfunctional behaviors going on. So maybe getting to college just gets them out of that uh, dysfunctional environment and they, maybe they get in with a, a peer group that's more supportive of pro-social behaviors. I don't know. I'm speculating now. Yeah. But you know, the, but the, think- I, if I can just interject here, I, it, one of the things that fascinates me about uh, talking about a, a study about research is that it raises so many questions. You, you don't, <laughs> you don't know how much you don't know until you find out something. Absolutely, <laughs> but I think yeah. it's really useful to to sort this out because a lot of people, myself included have always been under the assumption that childhood trauma for young men does increase their risk of being a sexual offender. But our data are saying, well, yes, it increases the risk of offending in adolescence, but maybe it doesn't tell us anything about the, all these other guys who begin offending in college. What's going on with those guys? And we've got some ideas, and I suspect as you would probably guess, it has a lot to do with peer group and alcohol and drug use. We don't know. We don't have the data on that yet, but I think we really, that would be a very fruitful line 
avenue to go down. Yeah. Yeah. So many questions. So many questions. Okay. Now the 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 obviously your your the group that you looked at were college age students. Yes. Um, yes. Did you were you able when you started your research? I mean, every every researcher starts with an idea or a question. What was and your question was, who are these guys? Um, did you also um, ask or uh, down the road or anything? I mean, are you going to keep focused on on campus age? It would. I guess what I'm getting at is, wouldn't it be amazing if you could follow, uh, you know, some of these people? down the road and see if, you know, 10 years from now they are still exhibiting any kind of aggressive behaviors, like, you know, sexually aggressive behaviors. I don't know. That's yeah, probably that be uh, unrealistic probably, but, boy, wouldn't that well, be fascinating? I mean, the number one challenge would be to find somebody willing to fund that research. But I will I will say this is, this is kind of dated research now, but um, Neil Malamuth, did some analyses of sexual assault during the college years, and he was able to track down some of his research participants 10 years later. Now, he didn't track down all of them. We don't know if the ones he tracked down were a representative sample. But he found that a lot of those men who had been offending during the collegiate years even though they might not have been being sexually aggressive, they were still in very negative um, relationships 10 years later, suggesting that there really might be some long-term impacts. But his work is the only work I'm aware of tried to make that connection between what went on in the collegiate years to um, what goes on in later later adult relationships. And it's it's very provocative yeah. and valuable work. So, okay, let's back up just a little bit. And you said that of your entire test sample, you you had 10% of the men who admitted to sexually uh, aggressive behaviors. What were some no, of those? Let me just clarify. About 10, it was almost 11% admitted to a behavior that met the legal definition of rape. If you ah, include, okay. so that's really important because cause this is another Everybody argues about the definition of sexual assault. We look specifically at rape. If you extend the definition to all forms of uh, sexual misconduct that would include unwanted touching and fondling and kissing, that would see, we didn't even look at attempted rape. If you Mm -hmm. look at that, if you look at verbally coerced rape, the number is probably going to go up closer to 15 to 17%. So, So clearly there are guys on campus that are engaging in sexually in sexual misconduct in ways that are not good for victims. And so even though today we're talking about rape, let's not forget that there is this whole continuum of sexual misconduct. And again, from a victim perspective, we don't want any of it going on. Sure, sure. Okay. What, um, okay, so this is what you found out. Um, and, and and I must say, you know, I mean, it's it's important that we remember that we're talking about 11%. That's really not a huge percentage. And yet we're seeing a high percentage, and I, don't, I should have done better homework. I don't have any numbers in front of me for that. But how often does campus rape occur? Do you happen to know that off the top of your head? Well, I'm not. I'm not sure. I totally understand your question, but if you look at the well, surveys that have been, 
That's why, yeah. I, I guess what I'm trying to do is segue back into this idea that we used to have about the campus serial rapist, that there's a couple oh, bad okay. guys out there and they're doing all of this. If we're talking that 11% of the, the, of, of the men, and we could, let's just generalize, let's just say 11% of the men on campus are committing behaviors that can be defined as rape, how many rapes are they committing? I mean, are we talking about 20% of, of campus women would be raped while they're there? Are we talking 5%? Are we talking how, I guess what I'm trying to say is, how does this number of men compare with the actual um, uh, prevalence of perpetration? Do we know? Um, sort of. <laughs> okay. I'm going to hedge on purpose. We know that if you look at women's self-reported rape experiences, depending on whether you include alcohol and drug-assisted rape, you're going to get somewhere around um, 15, you know, the one in five statistic that you hear. So, you know, maybe 20, around 20% or so. So we know that more women are reporting being victimized than men reporting being perpetrators, which does suggest that some of these guys have probably got more than one victim. And what we're trying to do is to figure out, do all the guys have more than one victim? Um, we really don't know because all of our research, we don't, we've, never, we've never measured rape incidents. We've always measured number of rape acts. And it's possible and common that one victim experiences more than one form of victimization during the assault. So, you know, maybe maybe first she was drugged and then force is used. And if, if, if I may be graphic, there might involve oral, anal, and vaginal penetration. So she could experience four different acts. So you understand what I'm saying? So we, yes, we can't. Yeah, yeah. And that's really, and I mean, myself included, we never really, made that distinction in our earlier research. And now, as we're beginning to look at these patterns, we're beginning to find out distinguishing between num different incidences, different numbers of victims, and how many acts were committed is going to be incredibly important to sort out this serial rapist thing. I guess the main thing I want to say is we don't know enough about what went on to use that phrase, serial rapist. So I think it's kind of a dangerous phrase to use right now, especially because it comes from the criminology things. And when they talk about serial perpetrators, it's not just how many times you do things, but it's um, motives, characterological attributes of the perpetrator, features of the crime, just a lot. Yeah. If you look at yeah. the criminal definition that we just don't know. So I think it's probably safer to just say, what do we know about repeat offenders? And let's let's okay. start digging into the data a little bit more to sort out, that out. The other thing is that um, in most of the research on victimization, it wasn't determined whether or not the women who were victimized were actually victimized by a male on her own campus. Was, it, was she victimized by somebody from another campus, a non-student? I mean, we, we don't really know much about yeah. that either. So, again, some of the disconnect between the numbers could be that some of the perpetrators came from elsewhere. And yeah. campuses, um, it's, I think Student Affairs, Title IX coordinators, they, they re, they're really trying to figure out how to manage the problem on their own campus. And so they're well, getting... Well, that brings us to the... 
to the question of, okay, how do you see this research? And you've already mentioned that you hope that this is just the start of a lot of research. Um, But how do you see this information that you called being used in a practical way? I can see at least two things for starters. One, which campuses can't deal with, is we really need to get people to start paying attention to going on in the early teen years. And, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of backlash in the country. People do not want you going into high schools and talking to kids about sex education, healthy relationships. I mean, there's, there's so much pushback to that that it's made um, doing sexual assault prevention among high school students incredibly difficult. But I th- So I think that's one thing that, that I would like to stress. The other thing I would like to stress is because we do have uh, these different patterns of offending on campus, at least our, our results suggest that's the case, and that some of these guys are repeat offenders and some probably aren't, is that campuses need to think about um, prevention programs that start early and probably happen often. A lot of campuses tend to do these one-shot psychoeducational programs programming at the beginning of the freshman year, and that's it. And that's just probably not enough. And so I think that these data might help um, say there needs to be more rigorous, intense, and ongoing sexual assault prevention programs and probably programs. There's some promising um, research that would suggest that instead of sort of focusing on the negative, stop sexually assaulting, let's focus more on what do positive healthy relationships look like? How do young men and young women negotiate uh, sexual agency? How do they feel good about themselves and their bodies? So that, because most students, let's think, you know, think about it. You were a college student. I was a college student. We didn't walk around campus thinking, is he going to assault me? Is he going to assault me? We don't think negatively. We're thinking much more affirmatively and positive about having healthy, fun relationships. So let's help people figure out what that looks like and how to how to achieve it. So it, it it's a it's a different way of thinking about um, approaching the problem. And again, this, I'm just speculating because we just don't know yet. Yeah. Um, well, and I think the, you know bringing that up is really good, and that's one of the the questions that you know I had about the the um, uh, men that you were talking about that. Uh, offended as as uh, in as adolescents, but then when they got to college, they didn't. I think that as adolescents, as most of us, only know what we see growing up until we become more sophisticated and more worldly, and we see our, our we are able to see other systems and other families, and you know, all we know is what we see. So what is acceptable there is what we think is the norm. If you have violence there, if you have aberrant behavior, that's what you're kind of thinking is norm, uh, normal until you get out and see differently. Right. right. So, yeah, so that what you're saying about focusing on those earlier years and showing some sort of, somehow modeling what is good behavior, uh, mm-hmm. what is, you know, I mean, I think that that's so important. Um you know, I mean, I jokingly said that, you know, I, I mean, what I would like to, you know, feed the Cosby family to my children growing up as, you know, in, in IVs or something, because they did it right, you know. And then, of course, with 
Bill Cosby, right. I guess yeah. I have to pitch that out the window now. But yeah, the show, that's, at least, that's another whole story. The, the show was a good model. Um, yes. And uh, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure what is a good model um, that that adolescents can popularly access, i.e., by TV right. or video or whatever. Um, so I think that you know, again, kind of off topic here, but you know, what a great idea to to show ways that things can be done in in a healthy and productive way uh, that mm-hmm. we might yeah, not see. Yeah, and I see. think that's I think that um, what you're talking about now is one of the motives behind the whole focus on consent and what mm-hmm. does consent look like, and um, and so I think that is an effort to take a more positive approach. Mm-hmm. So, but well, again, do you I don't think, think that, the research on well, that is... Do you think that... Um, one of the, I'm getting some feedback here. That's why I'm kind of hesitating. Um, do you think that one of the things, when we're talking about consent, I, I find, just in general conversations, a lot of times there's a fine line between convincing and coercing. Mm-hmm. Did your study look at any of that at all? One one of the uh, the particular rape study we didn't look at that, but in other data we one of the um, categories of sexual misconduct is verbally coerced sex. So it basically is um, using any kind of uh, coercive action, any any sort of threat, not including threat of physical harm, but it could be you know I'm going to break up with you. Um, I'm going to, you know, say bad things about you to your friends. Anything that's sort of negative, we captured that. And that that actually is, is pretty common, and that's not a crime. It doesn't meet any legal definition of a crime. But it's it's uh, probably, I would say, maybe uh, make perhaps the most common form of un- unwanted sexual experiences that young people experience. Um, and it, it can have really detrimental effects, even though it, it's not it's not criminal. So again, that plays plays back into um, you know what are the healthy ways to negotiate sexual activity so that you don't end up doing something that you don't really want to do. I mean, real genuine sex should be entered into willingly, enthusiastically, not just oh, well, I'm just going to give up and just go along to get along kind of thing. Is that That's not healthy. No. Even if it's but as you crime. said, is that rape? I mean, is that rape or just... No, you know. no, that would not meet the legal definition of rape. But it's but again, from a victim perspective, it's not, it's not healthy, and the data tell us that. Mm-hmm. People yeah. who are verbally coerced into sex don't feel good about themselves. Yeah. And, of course, you know, I mean, the whole thing about here, if, if people could experience unwanted sexual contact and just be blasé about it and who cares, you know, it would be a different kind of problem, wouldn't it? Uh, the, the the reason that this is so significant is because the the the, the um, after effects can be so dramatic and so yes. um, strong for people to live with for the rest mm-hmm. of their lives. Yes, you're so, right. The, 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 the long-term effects of the trauma can be quite dramatic. It's not One of the, just kids the, being kids. Yeah. I have a question in the chat room. Uh, someone wants to know if you looked at all at how the, your your study population, of this, this 11%, um, how did they feel about 
their actions? Or were you just very objective when you asked that? Did, did, do, did you have any methodology for measuring any kind of regret or anything like that in your questioning? No, unfortunately we didn't. The, the one, um, one question we did ask was if, if she didn't want to do this, how did you know? And most of the guys oh. said, because she said so. I'm sorry. And I am. Uh, these guys are not misreading the cues. I mean, yeah. all this. Any anybody who says, "Oh, it's just a matter of miscommunication," I would vehemently object to that. These guys know that huh. she doesn't want to do this. Yeah. But we didn't. We we didn't go beyond that, and I think that would be a really interesting follow-up study, especially for these guys if they're only repeating during uh, uh, raping during one time period. Are they more likely to be regretful than the ones that are repeatedly offending? That would be really interesting to figure out. Because if they're one-time offenders, they might be much more um, amenable to interventions that really help them see the errors of their way and go on and have healthy, productive relationships. Whereas the guys that are repeatedly offending are much more likely, uh, this this is my hypothesis, I don't know for sure, but I'm wondering if they might be much more likely to have psychopathic characteristics, their characterological disorder, and that intervention with them has to be really different. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that just in normal human behavior, I mean, if if we experience a sense of guilt and regret, we react, we see our behaviors as something to not repeat if we can avoid it. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. If we don't experience that regret uh, or or you know guilt then why not repeat it? Um, right. So, it's, right. yeah, so it stands to reason that, you know, and I, I, again, going back to the, well, you know, we don't know how many questions, how much we don't know until we know something. Um, I wonder what the impact is for a, a guy who has raped and regrets it. Do they experience any kind of trauma from that from that experience? Mm. Wow, that's a great question. There's a research study for you. <laughs> yeah, that no, was... my field is different. <laughs> <laughs> no, that but, that, uh... that I think is a is a really good question, and um, it and that also then has implications for the kind of intervention that you would want to to put in place. That's that's an excellent question. I hadn't thought about that. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> Next time a grad student comes to you, you can say, have you thought about this one? Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this research is not only do that we learn about, you know, perpetration and all this kind of stuff and how prevalent or how, how you know, frequent it is, we also um, uh, can expand and learn about... For example, in domestic violence, which is a field that I know a little bit more about, um, we always used to call the perpetrator. We used to think there was one kind of person who did this. And, of course, mm-hmm. as the years went on and as the research developed, we learned that, no, you know, there's not a perpetrator of domestic violence. And it sounds to me like one of the the, the, the uh, uh, impacts of your study is that there there is not a college rapist. Am I correct? Right. I think that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and of course, that makes the whole issue more complex because you're not just devising programs to deal with one 
type of, of person. You have to, you know, expand those programs and make them fit other scenarios and other personalities and all that kind of stuff. So tough. I'm glad I'm not in charge of developing campus. Well, you know. and I think I think the other thing that, that complicates it and really points to the need for really good prevention programs, again, from a victim perspective, if somebody has committed an act of rape, whether he is a one-timer or a potential repeat person, she deserves justice. And her justice cannot depend on his motives or profile, I don't think. Justice for a victim is justice for a victim, which I think really complicates it um, even more. Mm -hmm. But what is justice? We've never had that conversation. Yeah, but what is justice? You know, I mean, a justice for some people who, for example, have had a loved one killed in a car wreck by a drunk driver. For some people, they want retribution. They want that perpetrator to go to jail and, and spend a good mm-hmm. deal of time there. Um, for others, it's they want a sincere apology and they want that person right. to do better. Right, so, exactly. And I think that brings in the whole push towards um a trauma-informed, victim-centered approach to justice, which is really complicated, and it's um, that's another whole uh, set of conversations. And this is true both in the domestic violence as well as the sexual assault literature, which also then raises the prospects that for some victims and perpetrators, a restorative justice approach might be much more um, meaningful and helpful in the long run than a criminal justice approach. Explain the difference briefly since we brought it up. Um, not everybody might be familiar with the terminology restorative justice. Well, the idea of restorative justice, it's more of a, a victim-centered approach. It really is what you were just talking about, that, that, that for some victims, what they really care most about is having their victimization acknowledged, having an apology, having some control over what should be the consequences for the perpetrator, so, you know, for example, somebody might say, well, you know, I don't want him expelled, but I don't want him on campus until I graduate. Or um, I just don't want him in my classes. So there might be a variety of uh, consequences that would leave, leave the victim feeling like she has achieved justice, the number one thing being that that, that the perpetrator has to admit guilt. And then... in in, in some of the studies that have been done, I don't I don't even know if there have been any studies on restorative ju- justice done on college campuses, but in some of the other studies that have been done, uh, looking at restorative justice as an alternative to um, some kind of court adjudication, the um, offender basically has his charge put on hold as long as, as long as he doesn't reoffend. If he reoffends. Everything is off the table. Most of these restorative justice programs only work for a first-time offender. If somebody has a history of offending, they're not even eligible for it. So, because a lot of people get get nervous, thinking, "Well, this is not fair. This is a cop out. This is a way out for the perpetrator." So, there's only certain kinds of perpetrator or crime profiles that would make them even eligible for it. Um, but I mention it primarily because it is a more victim-centered approach that recognizes that justice means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. 
This is just pulled from the top of my head. I don't have any real educational background or basis for what I'm going to say, but I think it's true. When you're talking about victim-centered, I think whenever anybody has been victimized, whether it is domestic violence or rape or carjack, you feel, it seems to me, an extreme sense of loss of control over what happens in your own life. And so I think what you're saying is is that whatever remedy can be crafted for that particular individual to feel like they have some control regained, that's what's restorative justice? Yes, yes. Yeah, and it really derives derives from, um, for example, there are Native traditions from which some of this has been derived. It's, 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 a, it's a different way of thinking about healing. And for people who have a very sort of punitive approach, somebody does something wrong, they got to pay, they got to go to jail or whatever, restorative justice is so just disconcerting for them. Mm-hmm. So it's controversial. It's definitely controversial. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, i got to say, I'm, I'm not some high, lofty person. I can think of some things that might somebody might do to me where I would require... <laughs> <laughs> no less than punitive, nasty, re, you know, well, repercussions sure, for them. Sure. Yeah, um, and again, <laughs> so, yeah. it's the same well, one size never fits all. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, okay, let's back up here. When you started the study, you had a hypothesis, you had a question. Did this study answer your question? Yes. So the, the the main hypothesis was that, based on other research, we expected to see different patterns of offending. We weren't quite sure what those patterns would look like, but if you look at the juvenile delinquency literature, for example, you find that there are some juvenile delinquents that are what they call life course persistent, and these are juveniles that go on to become adult criminals. And then there's... Um, Another pattern in the delinquency literature that is um I forget the exact phrase, but it's it's limited. And so these are these are kinda like kids doing stupid things as teenagers and then they you know, they get with the program, they grow up and they go on to be, you know, healthy, productive adults. Um and so you have so that kind of suggested in general criminal behaviors follow different patterns and some people desist and some persist. So we kind of suspected that we might see something like that um, in in our in our findings. And you did. Yes. So um again, uh, picking up a question from our chat room, what's next for you? What will you study next? Well, um the research team that I mentioned earlier um, in both Marty Thompson's data set and my data set, we do have additional questions about attitudes and personality and some alcohol and drug stuff. So I think the, probably the next thing to do is to go back and dig a little bit deeper in the data and see if there are any hints to what some of these other relevant factors might be. And then hopefully somebody, it won't be me, but somebody will do a new longitudinal study. Hopefully there will be some federal funding to do another study that is specifically designed to get at these questions. The data the data that we're looking at when the studies were originally designed were never designed to look at this. Um and so we really need to go on to the next day. I'm I I'm basically retiring, so 
I'm at the end of my career. I'm I'm waiting for the the young, energetic, up and coming scholars. <laughs> you're waiting for the live. beach. I know what you're waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> but uh I think that when you have a curious mind though, you're gonna continue with that curious mind in one way or another. Um that's just what we human beings do. So <laughs> I know, I know. I keep I, I keep saying things like retired but not retiring, older and bolder. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Actually, I just you might be interested in this. I just booked our speak our guest for October 17th, and he is a psychologist who studied for many years working with a geriatric population, and our topic is going to be the great stuff about getting older. Oh, cool. So, and and I think, you know, being one of those critters myself who is actually getting older, not younger, I see that there are tremendous benefits that nobody's ever talked about. So we're going to talk about it a little bit. And, right. uh, you know, yeah, there's that gravity thing, but, you know, there's also some good stuff that compensates for that, I think. So so you might want to listen to that. Maybe you'll get an idea for your next your ne- your next uh, dip into the research here. <laughs> yes, that would be great. Yes, well, with, with experience and time does come some wisdom, I think. Oh, I think so, too. I think so, too. And uh, unfortunately, you know, for those of us with children, sometimes that wisdom involves biting your tongue a lot. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, I must say I found the study fascinating. I would like to um, see something, you know, like you're talking about, going more into attitudes. Um, Because I think if we don't know how people view their own behaviors, how can we possibly help them change those behaviors? Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems logical to me. Um, And, of course, the danger with all this stuff is it's all great and wonderful to say, okay, so we've got, you know, a a perpetrator who, who, uh, you know, uh, as an adolescent did this, but then it tapered off, and then he became a productive citizen and all that kind of... The problem and the catch to all this is that somebody gets to decide which one they are and try to come up with appropriate um, reactions and and handling of that person after they've done something like a campus rape. And that has to be super tough. Um, Yeah, and and I think that that does pose a challenge for for campuses because, first and foremost, as we've already talked about, victims deserve justice. Mm Mm-hmm. However, we live in a country where we have uh, a value on due process. And so when people are accused of something, they're entitled to, you know, their day in court, so to speak. And so balancing those two are going to be challenges. But I think, as, as you've implied in several of your questions, until we have a better understanding of all the different dynamics, it's going to be very difficult to come up with policies and procedures that are fair all around. And so far, when you look at everything that we know about campus sexual assault, the victims are the ones coming out on the short end of the stick right now. Victims are not getting justice. Well, and one of the things that I don't understand, of course, have not being involved in, in campus and campus rape and all that stuff, um, is why is it that it's always the campus that's de- that decides? I mean, if I am raped, you know, coming out of 7-Eleven, I call the police and it's, mm-hmm. it's taken care of that way. Why is it that if I'm raped coming out of, you know, Findlay Hall, I'm not 
uh, calling the police. I'm calling the campus police, and the campus mm-hmm. decides what's going on. I don't understand that. I mean, campuses are not the Vatican. They're not a separate entity into right. and unto themselves. Well, I think that's, and that's part of the problem, and that's why there are so many campuses that are under investigation by um, the Office of Civil Rights right now because there's been um, a lot of confusion about who has jurisdiction over what, and I, I think that part of it is that campuses are responsible for meeting the mandates of Title IX. Title IX is, is about gender discrimination, so it includes a whole spectrum of sexual misconduct from sexual harassment to other forms of gender discrimination. Um, Campuses also have codes of conduct so that, you know, you can get expelled for cheating on an exam. It's easier to get expelled from college for cheating on an exam than to get expelled for for being found guilty of rape. It's it's crazy if you you look at the data. So I think a lot of the new legislation that's coming out, some of the work that they're trying to do... um, through the Office of Civil Rights is to try to figure out what is the relationship between campuses and um, the local the local police because when a crime is committed, people feel like that crime needs to be dealt with in the same way, like you just said, coming out of the 7-Eleven. Um, so that's one point. But then there's this other point that Title IX is about gender discrimination. And so campuses have an obligation to pursue any kind of gender-based misconduct. And clearly, rape and sexual assault are an extreme form of that. And so, it, yeah, I, I think you've raised a, a really important point, and it's it's one that campuses and the local authorities are trying to work out. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in reading the study, and I know sometimes studies can be dry, but it, it's, it's interesting. Um, if you're interested in reading Jackie's study, it's called Trajectory Analysis of the Campus Serial Rapist Assumption. Uh, Trajectory Analysis of the Campus Serial Rapist Assumption, and it's available in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics, and it was uh, published online there uh, July of this year. So uh, go ahead and, and check it out, skim through it. You might learn more than we were able to cover on the show today. Jackie, I always end my show with a quote, and the quote that I found today I think is, is pretty relevant. Um, it is from a woman named Judith Lewis Herman. I must confess I do not know who she is, but mm-hmm. she said, in practice, the standard for what constitutes rape is set not at the level of women's experience of violation, but just above the level of coercion acceptable to men. So, and I think that's true. I think that mm-hmm. when we're making the rules, we're making the rules of, um, about rape not based on women's experience, but based mm-hmm. on men's experience. And I think that's something we all need to look at. So again, thank you so much, Jackie with us and, and letting us learn more about this important study and um, I'm I'm willing to bet you're not going to totally totally throw <laughs> in the towel during your retirement you just you just can't do that so I look you're forward to seeing right. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to actually seeing more um, as you look at your data uh, on uh, um, the emotions and regret and, and all of that stuff that may or may not have been experienced by some of your sample groups so it's going to be interesting I think 
Thank you so much for joining us this week on Three Women, Three Ways. Next week we're looking, I'm, I'm having a hard time lining this up, but we're looking at a show on how trauma affects memory. How many times have we heard them, some people say, just get over it? Well, sometimes it's not that easy. So um, we're going to have a memory talk about the effects of trauma on our memory. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us again. Thank you. Three women, three ways. Thank you, Jackie.